praise the Lord. We're in Genesis. We're in Genesis chapter 3 tonight. So by way of quick review, we've looked at several different doctrines. We've looked at uh, certainly the doctrine of the scriptures being inspired. And again, by way of reminder, we believe that all of the scriptures from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the 39 books in the Old Testament and the 27 in the New Testament, we believe are verbally inspired by God. They are infallible, they are inerrant, and they are the authoritative rule and conduct for every believer. So we're to align our lives with the Word of God. And when our lives don't align with what the Word of God says, does the Word of God need to change? Pretty sure we need to change. So we want to make those commitments and uh, make change and bring about change in our lives, and the Spirit of God will help us with that. Uh, Chapter 2, we looked at... Uh, the one true God and the manifestation of God. We saw that first hint of the triune or the trinity, if you will, in God's name, Elohim. It is that plural use of the noun in its grammatical single or singular uh, sentence structure. It would be like using a plural uh, noun and using the word is uh, in the sentence in our English grammatic. It just, it should be are and not is. So anyway, all that to say, uh, there's a hint there of his triune nature. And we see throughout the totality of Scripture that he has revealed himself, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And so we believe in the one true God who has manifest himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are uh, three distinct persons. They have the same character, same qualities, same uh, omniscient, omnipresent, and uh, uh, what's the third one I'm looking for? Omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient. That's the word I was looking for. Thank you. Uh, And so, this morning we looked at the doctrine of the fall of man, and we're picking up in chapter 3, verse 1. We will reiterate because it's in the text. We're also going to pick up on a number of other things that we will see in the text. And so uh, we'll navigate through chapter 3. We'll likely get into chapter 4. I mentioned that in chapter 3, our understanding of what is transpiring here and what God does, it really is foundational for us in our understanding of all of what is contained very, very specifically because there is much conjecture and much question in relationship to what transpires in chapter 4 when we see Cain and Abel and Cain and Abel in due season bringing offerings to the Lord and one is acceptable and one is not and so if we understand chapter 3 chapter 4 will come into its proper light and we'll have greater understanding so I hope to hopefully clear some uh, maybe questions that you may have as well as Uh, answer some questions, and if there are any other questions, uh, why I hope to give a little bit of time at the end to ask questions, and we'll try and uh, do the best to answer those as we go. Um, We have looked at, in chapter 1, we've seen the creation. We've looked at a number of different models of belief of how God did his creative work. Uh, We looked very very slightly at some of the uh, secular humanistic and naturalistic views of how the origin of the universe came to be, but more importantly, we looked at 
the biblical examples, and we, we, we mentioned some seven different models of belief associated with creation. And uh, I, I focus probably uh, on one in particular, and that is a more literal translation of the Scripture. I am a young earth uh, believer. I believe that God created the world as we know it, uh, or at least uh, the pre-Noatic flood world. Uh, in today's world, um, in six literal days. Six literal days. And a part of that, again, was because we see in Exodus chapter 20 that God references even his inscription with his own hand that it was within six days that uh, he created the earth and on the seventh day he rested. And it's in the context of man working six days six literal days, and then on the seventh day making sure he gets his rest in the midst of the law in Exodus chapter 20. And so other other reasons that we looked at. So uh, if you have any thoughts or questions on that, why those are online, you can uh, simply go to the website and scroll down, click on the listen, and it will pull up our SoundCloud account, and uh, those uh, notes or, or those sermons are in there, and you can uh, listen to those, and you'll get a little bit more information. Uh, chapter 2 we delved into, if you will, uh, really the creation of man and uh, the formation of man. And so uh, lots associated with that in the garden. And here we come to chapter 3. So we did look at the very tail end of chapter 2 and the institution of marriage and God establishing marriage in the days of creation, if you will. He formed and fashioned the woman Eve from the side of Adam caused Adam to go into a deep sleep, pulled flesh and bone from his side, and closed up the skin, and then fashioned and formed a woman, brought the woman to the man, and he said, now this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken from man. And he says these words, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave or be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The scripture goes on to say, and they were both naked. Uh, the man and the woman, and were not ashamed. So we come to chapter 3. It says this, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now let's first, before we get into really these first few verses and the temptation, if you will, of Eve, the deception of Eve, let's talk about the one who is doing the deceiving. Because one element that we have not addressed is when did God create the angels? When did God create the angels? I'm not so sure we can pinpoint that exactly. What we do know is all angels are created beings. And all of the angels are referred to as sons of God. They are Created directly by God himself. Bara Elohim. Created by God. And so, 
Job, if you turn in your Bibles to the book of Job in chapter 38, there is a reference to the sons of God. And so in your Bibles, just before Psalms, we have Job. In Job 38, there is a reference. So let's look at this, and this will give us at least a hint about an approximation when they likely uh, were created. Chapter 38 of Job says this, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is, who is this who, darkne- who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line upon it? To what were its foundations fashioned? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Let me stop there for just a moment. Here we have at the foundations of the earth being laid, we have the sons of God shouting for joy. Well, these sons of God are the angels. So it would definitively tell us that the angels had already been created when God began to lay the foundations of the earth. So the question is, was it in eternity that they were created, or was it after, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth? And I don't know that we can necessarily pinpoint that, but what we do know is that they were prior to that foundational piece, when it says here, uh, when its foundations were fashioned, or who laid its cornerstone. So, I simply say, these beings are not eternal. Angels are not eternal. They did not come from eternity. They are created beings. Satan... Lucifer, as we're told in Isaiah, his name, he is a created being. Sometimes Christians have this picture that this conflict that is going on in the invisible realm where we can't see, that somehow Satan is Jesus' equal, and they are opposing and fighting. And that's just not the case. Satan is a created being, and we know from the New Testament that Jesus is the one who did all of the creative work. And so it's very likely that all of the angels were, in fact, created by the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. And so, definitively, Satan is not a equal authority in the heavenly realms. Does that make sense? Uh, hopefully, if, if you have been confused on that, that that brings some level of clarity. Now then, to mention that he is powerful, I would be remiss to say that he is not. He is powerful. He has authority. It has been a delegated authority. He is a principality. He is a heavenly being, and he has great authority. In fact, he is a cherub, or a cherub, one of the cherubim. We have mention in Scripture of at least five 
cherubim. Lucifer himself is a cherubim. And we have a reference to four others around the throne of God. We have a reference to a cherub or a cherubim that will also be at the entrance of the Garden of Eden. It may, in fact, have been one of the four from the throne uh, room of God that we see in Revelation. All that to say, he had authority. Revelation tells us in his rebellion with his tail, he took with him one-third of the stars of heaven. One-third of the angels went in rebellion with him. Now that means two things, minimally. Number one, there is with our adversary, the devil, he has with him principalities, powers, rulers, and authorities, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. But the beauty is, the second piece, is that there are more with us than there are against us. You might recall the story of Elisha and his servant, and they were surrounded. And uh, the servant gets up in the morning, goes outside the tent, and sees that they're completely encircled around by the armies of the enemy. And he comes back in the tent, and he wakes up the prophet. The prophet comes out, and he prays that the servant's eyes would be open. And as his eyes were open, he sees angels, chariots of fire, and he makes that statement, those that are against us are less than those that are with us, or those that are with us are greater than those that are against us. And so we recognize, uh, and greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world, thanks be to God. And so this enemy, he is a crafty foe. The scripture tells us as believers that we are not unwise to his schemes. What we will have here tonight is certainly some military intelligence on how he operates. His tactics seem to be very consistent. Very consistent. We'll contrast Adam and Eve's encounter with Satan in the garden with Jesus' encounter in Matthew chapter 4 when he is led by the Spirit out into the wilderness. So let's look. The serpent... And I mentioned this morning that there are, with this Hebrew, its root word, there are different forms. There's the noun form, there is the verb form, and there's the adjective form. And in the adjective form, I believe it is, that this word is translated shining one. Shining one. And that is a proper translation. In fact, ancient Hebrew uh, theologians, if you will, identify that shining one is an appropriate translation here. We know, again, because the New Testament tells us that Satan himself masquerades around as what? An angel of light. And so this idea of shining one. Well, he comes and we find that he is more cunning than any beast. And the word cunning there uh, another translation, I think it's the King James, says subtle or subtle. Uh, and it really means he is more prudent and has great wisdom. Well, we certainly know, we're told in Scripture that Lucifer himself is wise and is very cunning. So 
says he is more cunning than any beast. And let me just simply say the translation of the word beast here could also be translated living beings. They're living beings. He is more cunning, more wise than the other living beings of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? One of the tactics, and I believe the very first tactic, that the enemy will do with both you and I is he will try and bring about and incite doubt. To bring about doubt. He'll question God's purpose and plan. And we can see this in questions because even here tonight, you may be here, and in the midst of your own circumstances, you may be beginning to ask, why would God do that? You know, the enemy wants to whisper things in our ear to erode our confidence and our trust and our faith in the Lord. And he'll bring about questions. If God is a loving God, why would he allow that? He'll even, he'll give us all kinds of questions. Uh, did, did God set Adam and Eve up for failure? If he didn't want them to eat of the tree, why did he put it there? And he begins to throw, I've had that question asked to me several times. Here's what we need to remember about the character of our God. Our God is loving. Our God is good. He's always good. Let me rephrase that. He's always good. We can have absolute confidence in that. God is always good. So when we don't have the answers to why God's doing something, we trust that his purpose is what? Good. Remember, the New Testament, Paul tells us he is causing all things to what? Work to the good to those who are the called in Christ Jesus. Every good and perfect gift flows from the Father of lights. So, the enemy incites doubt. He questions God. He questions God's word. You note that when he tempted Jesus in the gar- or out in the wilderness, that he questioned or challenged the word of God. And so we'll look at that in just a few moments. But has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Verse 2, and the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Do you notice something that Eve does here? Eve adds to God's word. Now, I think there's a challenge there for every one of us. I believe the challenge there is for us to know the Word of God and to know what the Word of God says. I remember when I was saved, and I grew up in a home where there was faith, certainly, but I remember my mom used to say something all the time, and it sounded very, very good. 
And I had a roommate who was uh, living at the house. He, we were playing football, and he was from a different area, so he was living at our house, and he was a full-on believer. He had attended Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, and he had just loved Jesus. And uh, I got saved, and he was excited that I had gotten saved. He moved in, and uh, I remember one day we were talking, and I had maybe known the Lord for two months or so. And in the midst of this conversation, I said, well, John, Listen, God helps those who help themselves. He said, he does. He said, where's that in the Bible? <laughs> I said, I have no idea, but it must be there because my mom says it all the time. <laughs> he says, brother, God helps those who cannot help themselves. And I said, well, that makes pretty good sense, too. <laughs> he says, that's, you're not quoting scripture, you're quoting a cliche. He said, you should get to know your word better and start quoting scripture according to how the scripture was written. And that was a lesson for me. And I found myself, I'm not going to repeat what I hear somebody else say. I'm going to find it, and I'm going to memorize it, and I'm going to speak it as it is written, because the written word of God is inspired. Does that make sense? And so here Eve adds to the word of God. Proverbs tells us not to add or take away from the word of God. The book of Revelation tells us very succinctly not to add or take away from the words of this prophecy, lest the curses be added to you. And so, it's imperative, and we'll find that Jesus, when he combats the temptations of the evil one, that he straightens up the utilization of Scripture. Recognize that Satan quotes God. He quotes God. And with Jesus, he quotes Scripture. But he misuses the Scripture. And there's a warning for us there as well. If Satan, who masquerades as an angel of light, misuses Scripture, what do you think he might try and incite us to do? Misuse the Word of God. Sometimes we use scriptures to justify our behaviors and justify our actions. Well, you can see tactics in here. There is, the Bible tells us, there is no private interpretation of the scripture. God means what God says. Amen? Yeah, he has purpose. He has meaning. We cannot take scriptures out of context to use them in our own circumstances to mean what we want them to mean. God means what he says, and he says what he means, okay? So it's important for us in that regard. Uh, so here we find the woman in the garden. She misquotes. Verse 4 says, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. He incites doubt, and then he denies the truth. He denies the word of God. He denies. You will not surely die. What does he say to you and I sometimes today? This won't hurt anyone. This, this isn't hurt. This, this is this will only affect you. We just we'll bite hook, line, and sinker, right? Listen, when one of us is hurting, doesn't the Scripture tell us that we all suffer? When one is suffering, we all suffer. And if we buy into this lie that somehow what we do only affects us, 
Well, that's just not true. Try and tell that to your little toe the next time you kick the sofa's leg as you walk by barefoot. <laughs> this won't hurt the rest of the body. And you kick the leg of the sofa as you walk by. Ouch. Your whole body reacts to the little toe that you seems to be an insignificant part of your body. My wife, we were in the kitchen about a week and a half ago, ten days ago or so, and uh, while she was standing at the sink, she turned and her elbow knocked a glass on the floor and it shattered. And honestly, it shattered into thousands of pieces. I thought, how did that glass break so radically? And I came over, she was barefoot, I brought her shoes, put her shoes on, and we sh I started picking up what few big pieces there were. She got the little broom, and she went and meticulously swept the floor. Meticulously. About four hours later, while she's walking barefoot in the kitchen, guess what she found? The one piece of glass that wasn't swept up, and when she sat down to pull the piece of glass out, guess what it did? It broke off inside her foot. Glass is impossible to see. And I used to have pretty good eyes, and I could see things, you know. But now I'm looking at her foot, and I'm like, I can't even focus on your foot, girl. That alone would be a piece of glass that would be inside your foot. Well, she thought, I'll just let a few days go by, and this little fella will work its way out. Well, you have a very small piece of glass. She drew a picture of the piece of glass. I mean, it was like a granule of salt. Well, it was a little bigger than that. It was like a maybe a flake of oregano. Ten days later, she had to go to the doctor and have it removed and extracted. And the doctor, I mean, it, he said, it's like pushed up there further. By you walking on it, you forced it up higher, and it was hard to find, so they had to kind of dig. Can you imagine how that felt? Well, it was just a little piece of glass. This isn't going to affect anything else. It affected everything she did. Her whole body is reacting to this little foreign piece of matter. And listen, in the kingdom of God, when the enemy comes to you as an individual, comes to me as an individual, and he starts to say things to us like, this won't hurt anyone. I got news for you. If it affects you, it affects the whole body. Does that make sense? Everybody understand that? It matters, and what we do matters. And so what Eve bit into, verse 4, you will not surely die, for God knows in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like Have you noticed that it is something that is desirable for us to have knowledge? Uh, when I came in tonight, I heard a conversation, just uh, kind of a sidebar conversation about knowledge. Knowledge puffed up. And yet, our desire for knowledge, our desire, how many of you would like to know the will of God for your life right now? You want to know. We want to know. In fact, so much so that we sometimes try and create our own destiny. We like to start making plans for things. We want to know. We want to know. Well, Eve is no different. She wants, hey, she was, it was whispered in her ear. You can get with God. Well, they walked with God. And so to have his wisdom and his knowledge, that would be desirable. Now, I want you to, with me, look at 
what transpires next. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Let's stop there for a moment. The Apostle John, in his, really his love letter, he's the author of five of the New Testament epistles, books. He says in 1 John, turn in your Bibles with me real quickly to 1 John. 1 John chapter 2. This is a scripture you probably would want to have underlined in your Bible. It's on page 1074 in my Bible, but I'm not sure where it is in yours. I just know 1 John chapter 2. It says this in verse 16, a familiar verse perhaps to many. It says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of this world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Categorically, three areas of temptation. Three major areas. In fact, I might even submit that these are the only three areas that any one of us would be tempted in. It just comes in some form or fashion beneath one of these headings, if you will. And what we would find is Eve in the garden, notice that she saw that it was good for food, the lust of the flesh, to satisfy her, her body, to be satisfied. It was pleasant to the eyes. Remember this morning I mentioned, and I, I've certainly read and seen and heard other commentators talk about the portals of temptation and how Satan uses things visually to bring about temptation. He uses the portal of the eye. Remember what Jesus said in relationship to the eye. If the eye is good, then the whole body is good. But if the eye is not good, then the whole of the one is bad. Our eye, what we remember the song that I know we taught our little kids to sing, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the Father up above is looking down in love, so be careful, little eyes, what you see. It's important. What we take in, what we think about, what we visually pull in can really do destruction. Here, the lust of the eye, the lust of the eyes. And then we come to a tree desirable to make one wise. The pride of life. The pride of life. To be like God. To be filled with wisdom. The pride of life. And you might look at your own life even tonight and as you think about the areas that you, the enemy brings temptation into your life, what does it look like? I can tell you tonight. I mean, just the simplicity of how deceitful the enemy is. I found myself in a conversation with someone very near and dear to me. And I discovered I wanted to win. I don't want to be wrong. <laughs> Mom, you weren't supposed to be here tonight. <laughs> but the idea there is 
I, I wanted to be right. And so arrogance steps in, and I didn't apologize. And so the family left the house, and I sat on the couch, and this is how marvelous the Spirit of God is. He reminded me of the sermon this morning about loving my wife and the challenge I made to men. And I thought, I am an idiot. And I immediately grabbed my phone and I made communication. I begged for her forgiveness and I just, I spilled it. I said, how could I have been more arrogant? Could I have been more arrogant? And it's, it, it can, and the reason I share that in, on a personal level is it can, it just, the pride of life, or the lust of the eyes, or the lust of flesh. Listen, Jesus reminds us, the, the New Testament tells us, when I want, Paul says, when I want to do good, evil is right there. We'll see in chapter 4, when God's talking with Cain, he says, uh, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you. It's right there. And so, in his craftiness, he deceives Eve and she takes the fruit and she eats the fruit. And that's the six goes on and says, she also gave to her husband with her and he ate. I mentioned this morning that I think the question that is begged is, where was Adam? Because if Adam had been there when the conversation started, it seems like he would have intervened in the midst of the conversation. And yet the scripture tells us that she gave him the fruit and that he was uh, with her. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Now, I want to make sure that I was clear this morning because I think I asked the question and I may have been <laughs> unclear and I want to make sure I, if I was, I am clear. I said to the women, or the wives, I said, how many of you wives would want your husband to love you that much? And some of the wives thought, I wouldn't want my husband to pick me over God. And that's not, I think that's not the context I was trying to say. The context I was trying to say is how many Wives would want their husbands to love them so much that they would not consider themselves, but consider their wives, unlike I did some three hours after the sermon, right? And so, <laughs> I know, right? Well, hey, I'm just being honest. I'm being honest here. Because here's the deal. If I can be transparent and honest, I think we all can learn. Listen, a wise man learns from his mistakes. A wiser man learns from someone else's mistakes. I make mistakes. And I'm okay being transparent about it. I don't have to tell you my stuff, but I tell you my stuff because I think it helps us because I think we can learn. And I'm all right being transparent about it. Does that make sense? And so I think all that to say, that was the point I was trying to make in terms of uh, fellas, we have to empty ourselves. Well, all that to say, I mentioned that Adam, he probably encroached upon the conversation. We don't have that. It's conjecture at this point. But somehow that 
chain of command, if you will, was superseded. Now, I will say this. That is probably a tactic of the evil one to supersede chain of command. I can, I can tell you this much. Think about, think about how in a family, the institution that was established by God in Genesis chapter 2, for this cause a man shall what? Leave his father and mother. That is the institution of family right there. It's been instituted by God. Think about how Satan will speak to kids and say, your parents aren't there. That is a tactic. He's superseding the chain of command. Think about how he will incite a child to pit mom against dad. Dad against mom. It's the usurping of authority. That is a tactic. I probably didn't notice that previously. All that to say, think about your employment. Sometimes we think, we have a better way of doing this. Our boss doesn't know very much. And he incites us to feel different rather than serving and working all things as unto the Lord. We begin to think I'm working for the man and we have ill feelings toward the one who has authority over us, not recognizing and not remembering Romans 13 that reminds us that all authority is God-ordained. And there's purpose. And so there's something to be said about that. And so we see this additional tactic. Now then, Adam eats. And remember that 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 14 reminds us that he was not deceived. In fact, Paul's instructing Timothy under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit reminds us that Eve was deceived, but Adam was not deceived. He willfully disobeyed the Lord. He willfully disobeyed the Lord. And sin, the Bible says, entered into the world through the disobedience of one man. The disobedience. And here's an interesting piece. Death by sin. Now I would hold that just as sin entered into the world through the disobedience of one man and death by sin... Therefore, prior to the disobedience of Adam, there was no death in the world. People ask the question, when did the dinosaurs die? After Adam sinned. That's what the Word of God says. That's a strong reason for me to believe in a young earth. That, that dinosaurs were destroyed with the flood of Noah. Okay, let's, let's move forward. Verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And again, this is a tendency. We've seen some of the tendencies of the enemy. We've seen his tactics in regards to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, and how he uses those to incite Desire, if you will. The tendency for man, when man gives into temptation and sins, misses the mark, if you will, violates, 
there we find some tendencies. Adam is a picture of what we do also. When we see here it says, But the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Our tendency is trying to cover our tracks, cover our disobediences, hide, not disclose, to keep them concealed. The beauty is the New Testament gives us the remedy for hiding, just like that piece of glass that was hiding in my wife's foot. What did it do left covered? It festers. It festers. It got worse, not better. Concealed. It got worse, not better. And ten days later, the cost of removing the small piece of glass was greater than had she initially just gone right over to the emergency and spent the hour or two or three, whatever it would have taken to go through the process and the line and so forth and so on and had that thing extracted. The cost was greater. The remedy in the New Testament is, we're told, confess your sins, what? One to another that you may be healed. Confession. If it's concealed, it will fester, get worse, and the cost will be greater. If it's revealed, well, there's liberty. It has no hold on me. Here's what I've discovered in my own personal life. When I conceal sin in my life, guess what it does? It becomes bondage, and it has power over me. It seems to be the thing that consumes my thought life. And it can control behavior. Well, it ought not be that way. Confession reveals it. It now has no power. And guess what? If I confess to a brother or sister to sister, now we have relationship where accountability can be built in. Does that make sense? Someone can say, how are you doing in this area of your life? A good brother of me recently texted me and sent me a note and says, have you painted your house yet? (laughs) In a way of kind accountability. Working on it. Boy, I'm in big trouble this week. All right. Uh, Let's move forward. And it says, they knew they were naked, they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Let me let me stop here and just simply say, remember the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 59 and verse 2 says our sin separates us from our God. Sin separates. Sin separates. Hidden sin will elongate the separation and oftentimes create a wider chasm, if you will, as a result of concealed sin. Oftentimes people will say, well, I feel real dry in my relationship with the Lord. I feel like God's distant from me. And I oftentimes wonder what's actually going on in that person's life when that happens. And I know sometimes it may not be anything other than heaven is quiet for a season and God is building trust in us. But many times what that occurs is the reality is there's something poor working and there's just some level of disobedience. And it doesn't necessarily, sometimes we think of disobedience as being some gross thing. It doesn't have to be some gross thing. Listen, if God tells you 
men or women to go communicate with your wives and confess or simply say something or be kind or whatever it is. Maybe you were supposed to give, maybe you were supposed to be kind to somebody at work. And you knew it, but you saw him coming and you had a little thing and you just like, I'm not going to be nice to this person. And you just, you weren't, it wasn't that you were mean, you just like, didn't give them any attention. And you knew in your heart, man, that's not right. It could be that simple. Does that make sense? Yeah, you know. Okay, so all that to say, that can create distance. And the Lord will reveal those things to us in our time with Him. And I think it's imperative that every one of us spend time with the Lord on a daily basis to listen to the Lord. Remember, His principal way of communicating with us will be through the ear. We will hear, even as we spend time in His Word, He will be speaking. The Lord is speaking right now. He's speaking. Jesus tells us and shows us. He says, I only do those things I have seen with my Father. I only speak the things I have heard from my Father. Jesus is revealing. The Lord is revealing, and he's speaking, and he'll speak to our hearts. It's just whether or not we're tuned in. Does that make sense? There's airwaves in the communication of the Lord. Okay. So they hid themselves amongst the trees of the garden. I think there's a tendency of man there to hide, to hide. And we hide some ways and in a variety of different ways. Sometimes we just avoid going to fellowship with brothers and sisters. We just, well, I had some other things that were important, so I didn't go to church. And then it was the next, well, there was another thing I didn't go to church. And we avoid, oh, here comes that brother we normally talk, I'm going to try and avoid him and be busy when he walks by. And we just, we hide, so to speak. Does that make sense? And that's, listen, if you're hiding or you're concealing, you can know that you are buying into hook, line, and sinker some of the tactics of the evil one. Let me ask you the question, did God know that Adam and Eve were hiding? Yes, he did. Did he know that they had already eaten the fruit? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Understand this. There are some things that God cannot do. There are some things that God cannot do. God cannot lie. He cannot lie. The scripture bears that out. God cannot lie. He is not man that he should lie. He is not the son of man that he should repent. He cannot lie. God cannot learn. might surprise you. God cannot learn. Why can he not learn? Because he knows everything. He knows everything. He knows the end from the beginning. So when he says, Adam, where are you? There's something else working there. There's a heart. And there's a revealing of a brokenness. Where are you? God knew where he was. about that for a minute. What did the psalmist say? What did David say? I could go to the depths of the sea. You're there. There's nowhere I can go from out of your presence. You're there. One of the names of God is the Lord is there. 
We're stewards of that which the Lord has entrusted to us. And we want to be responsible. Listen, we don't want to go the way of the world that is trying to avoid responsibility at every turn they can. We want to lead and we want to be the ones who will be responsible. We don't want to push off and say, well, it was that one or this one. Look look what Adam does. Who is he really blaming here? Is he blaming Eve? No. He's blaming God. The woman you gave me. She gave me the fruit. I mean, he's like, look, I'll throw it on you, God, or I'll throw it on her, but I just know it's not going to be on me. This is not my deal. He's, no. No. And that is a tactic. And if you find yourself pushing blame, somebody else, even up to and including being critical. And I will tell you, tonight, for me, and now my daughter is here, I'm just telling you, I tried to push the responsibility. It's not me. This is not me. That does not work. And thus, the communication to try and fix. So Adam is pushing off the responsibility. I just want to encourage all of us to be responsible in the things of the Lord and to be responsible to that which the Lord has entrusted to us. Does that make sense? To be stewards. Okay. And so he says, uh, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. It's a true statement, but it's the serpent's fault. Serpent's fault. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Let me pause here for a moment. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 is the first mention of the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman is a title of the coming Messiah. This is the first mention of God's redemption and his plan and purpose in redemption. It's called the Proto-Evangelicum or Evangelicum. Um, It is the promise of redemption that is forthcoming. The seed of the woman. Uh, There's much that I could say uh, at this time in relationship to the seed of the woman. The seed is identified with man. With man. Just as we are all sons of Adam, and in Adam we all are sinners. The seed, the lineage, goes with the man. And here we find this reference of the seed of the woman. Later we are told by Isaiah the prophet that the virgin will be with child. 
a bloodline other than Adam, not by the will of man did she become pregnant, but a miraculous work. And the virgin was with child. And it is the seed of the woman. And what came forth from Mary's womb was the incarnation of God. God became man. And he, and here we have the hint of this invisible battle. This is why I say this is the seedbed for the entirety of the, of the scriptures. The entirety that we see here. It, there is a real battle that is going on in the heavenly realms that we cannot see with our naked eye. And we find that this battle is between the seed of the woman and the seed, if you will, of the serpent. The enemy, our adversary, the devil, who roams around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. There is a very real battle that is ensued. And here we have the promise of the woman's seed or Messiah to come. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. I won't touch that tonight. <laughs> uh, I will mention this, that there is a very real strive for equality between men and women. Uh, and it, it's interesting to me that God established a certain order. Um, and the responsibility and the weight is on the shoulders of the man. He is the head. It's a headship issue. And the scripture here says, your desire will be for your husband. And there has been a distortion of even that desire. That the desire has become for the headship, if you will. And uh, it's certainly in society caused a tremendous amount of trouble. Um, there's interesting things that have happened on a sociological level uh, in society in general. And... Um, it's unfortunate that so, some things have transpired as they have. Uh, all that to say, um, certainly in the systems of this world, the presence of the enemy is not absent. And he has caused great havoc uh, in, in relationships, I believe. Verse 17. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread uh, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. Uh, from, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Uh, let, me, let me stop here and at least reference that this is, it's an interesting thing from a scientific level, and I'll, uh, we've got about six minutes here. Let me just simply say this. In the beginning, when God was in his creative mode in those first six days, he created all of the matter and the space and time, if you will, 
in this triune universe. So all the matter. Now, all of that matter had potential in terms of energy, but it had to be organized. It had to be put into its design. So God began to form and fashion, and he made all of the starry hosts, and he made all of the planetary systems, and he made all of the different galaxies and so forth and so on, and he did in a very timely way, and we have certainly the account of God creating, or the the matter, him bringing the matter together, and he made the earth, he caused the dry land to appear, he separated the waters above from the waters below, he created the sun and the moon and all of those kinds of things, and he, he was increasing the order over the days of creation until finally on the sixth day he was completed and it was finished and he beheld everything he had done and behold it was very good. Now then, some of the laws that govern our universe and for those of you who are more technically inclined you're probably familiar with the laws of thermodynamics. There are three. We'll talk about two very specifically tonight in very short order. The first law of thermodynamics is the law of conservation. Matter is neither being created nor destroyed. Matter can simply change form, and when matter changes form, it gives off energy, and that energy is in the form of heat. In other words, we could take a log, if we had a little fireplace here, we could take a log, and this log has chemical bonds in it that when those chemical bonds are broken, we will change the form of the atoms and the molecules that are there, and in the process of changing the forms of those molecules, heat will be released, and we'll all go, ooh, this fire is warm. Did anybody bring marshmallows and graham crackers and chocolate, and we'll make s'mores? But what's happening is the matter is changing from one form to another, and heat is being released. When the heat is released, there is now less availability in the totality of the universe to accomplish any work. Today, while the sun was burning, albeit we couldn't see it very much, we felt the effects of it in the humidity, but the sun was burning, and now there's 24 hours less available work for the sun to do because it burned up some of its stuff. Does that make sense? So the universe today is now a little bit more random than it was yesterday. Does that make sense? So what we have happening, I believe, from the beginning to day six, God completed his work and he organized everything and it was organized. It was orderly, in order. We come to the fall of man. And I believe this is when the second law of thermodynamics was initiated. And that is the law of decay. A system left to itself tends to go from order to disorder. And it's measured in entropy. And we know that all of creation is groaning. The curse had been placed on all of the universe. The universe is groaning. Paul tells us in the book of Romans, it is groaning and it is awaiting its own redemption, if you will. And so, 
first, I believe, was the enacting of that second law. This law governs our universe. We are going from order, that completed work that God finished and put orderly, now we are in the process of decay. We are winding down. The universe itself is winding down. And so, it has implications. You cannot violate the second law of thermodynamics. No matter how hard you try, you cannot. But you want to know something that's amazing? God can and God does. If you are born again today, living inside of you is God the Spirit. And God the Spirit, He is renewing us day by day. We are actually increasing internally in order when we give governance to Him. That is absolutely fascinating. With God, all things are possible. So the defiance of the second law of thermodynamics, where I should be internally in decay because the Spirit of God dwells in there, my inward man is being renewed day by day. I am changing from glory to glory into the image of the only begotten, Jesus Christ. We are a testimony miraculously right now because God the Spirit dwells in us. Here's another thing that transcends this universe and violates the second law of thermodynamics. You ready for this? The Word of God. The Word of God. It is not subject to decay. Thanks be to God. Listen, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. If we will consume the Word of God and let the Word of God transform us, if we will be renewed in our hearts and in our minds by the washing of the water of the Word, God's Word will reverse the effect of entropy. And he'll bring order in our disorder, in our hearts, and in our lives, and in our souls. You struggle with the flesh? Do you struggle with anger? Do you struggle with self-pity? Do you struggle with whatever, fill in the blank, depression, whatever it looks like, whatever you fill in that blank there? Listen, God can bring order there. You don't have to stay there. Can I get an Amen. We do not. Listen, if you use this excuse, hey, I'm an angry man or I'm an angry woman because my parents were angry people and that's the environment I grew up in. No. We are new creations in Christ Jesus. The scripture says we have the mind of Christ. We do not need to stay there. We do not need to make excuses. We need to simply... Trust the Lord and let the Word of God take root in our lives and transform us and be renewed. We are no longer subject to the law of sin and death. But we are subject to the law of life and the Spirit. Thanks be to God. You're a walking miracle. You are defying the second law of thermodynamics. Though the outward man perishes, the inward man is being renewed day by day, as your soul prospers. Come on! Praise the Lord. Well, we're not going to get through chapter 4 in the next 37 seconds, so let me just finish reading these last few verses here. Verse 20. 
But Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Let me leave this with you in relationship to verse 21. Notice that God himself made coverings for Adam and Eve. I want you to note very, very succinctly, this is not just about clothing. This is not about pants and shirts. He slew and shed innocent blood and atoned for their disobedience. We have here the beginnings of the Levitical law. What Hebrews tells us, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Leviticus 17 and 11 says, life is in the blood, and without blood there is no remission. It's the shedding of blood, and here we have this picture. And this will have impact on how we look at chapter 4 and what transpires with Cain and Abel. And there's a key within the story of Cain and Abel that will point out what is actually happening when they come there. Because of Abel's offering, there's something very unique that is said about that. And so we'll look at that next Sunday night, and we'll hopefully bring some clarity and some understanding. So we see here God providing for them atonement, covering. Now here's the thing. Be reminded of even the story of Abraham and Isaac as they went out and they went up Mount Moriah. What they had with them is they had the wood and they had the fire. And we see Isaac, who was not a lad of young age, but was likely in his early 30s. There he says, Dad, we have the wood and we have the fire. Where is the sacrifice? And we find Abraham's response was simply this. God will supply himself a sacrifice. Think of the prophetic nature. God will provide himself a sacrifice. He began by providing sacrifice in Genesis, and ultimately he provided himself, Jesus Christ, as the sacrifice. Darren. Sunday night, we will have service here. Remember, next Sunday morning is the all-one service at Alder Creek Middle School. If you arrive here at 10 o'clock, and you see we have someone here greeting you and waving and saying, hey, remember, it's the all-one service. Don't be, don't be like, well, I'm going to be late. I'm just not going to go. No, just drive right on over to Alder Creek. You're 15 minutes away maximum, and on a Sunday morning, you're probably only about eight minutes away. You just head on over and join in the service. It's going to be a great time. But there is evening service. We have play practice for the kids. There is evening service next Sunday night. We will go through Genesis chapter 4. We'll try and hit Genesis chapter 5 as well. I can see I'm moving slower than I anticipated, but we'll, uh, we'll do our best to pick up the pace here as we go a little further. Let's pray and ask God's blessing. Uh, Father, as we conclude tonight, and there's yet maybe a few verses in chapter 3 that we didn't finish. Lord, I pray that as we 
consider all that has transpired, we would, re- we would be reminded that our adversary, the devil, he is roaming around like a lion, roaring, seeking whom he may devour. We recognize and are reminded tonight that he is crafty, even as Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. He says, I fear lest uh, the crafty one has deceived you as he did Eve in the garden. Uh, and this deception is with the simplicity of the things of Christ. And Lord, we don't want this crafty one to deceive us, uh, recognizing that he masquerades around as an angel of light. Lord, may we be so familiar with the truth that we would be able to spot the counterfeit and the fraud immediately and call out. Your word tells us in the book of Revelation that they overcame the enemy by the word of their testimony, by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony. And so, Lord, may we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. And so, Lord, may we be quick in season and out. May we be filled up, fed up, fired up, and may the word of God be rich dwelling rich. As Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, he said, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. So, Lord, may it be rich in us and on our tongues. May we speak the truth of the word of God and combat the schemes of the enemy. Lord, we love you, and we ask, God, that you would help us uh, to be rightly related to our Father, to keep short accounts, to not hide, to not conceal, to not cover up, uh, but, Lord, to Walk in that nearness by and through confession. And Lord, we ask your blessing and your benediction tonight in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said a strong amen. Amen. Go in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Have an amazing week in Jesus. God bless you.